Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. As Leo Varadkar has exceeded a majority of votes of the Fine Gael Electoral College, I deem him elected the 11th leader of Fine Gael. Good evening and welcome to the Irish Times political podcast. As you can see, uh, it's not Hugh Linehan who's presenting tonight, it's Harry McGee. And I'm joined by two colleagues, uh, by political editor Pat Leahy and by political correspondent uh, Fiuk uh, Kelly. And both of them are imbibing beer, so I'm going to try to knock some sense out of them <laughs> over the next 20 minutes before they start breaking out into song like the Lions on tour in New Zealand. Uh, I'd say, Pat... You'd be very good on the Welsh uh, anthems, would you? I, 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 well, I could, I could perhaps say it after a few more Star of Pramans, but I really, I really feel that's not what we're here to talk about. <laughs> okay, well, what we're actually here to talk about has been an extraordinary day uh, by any yardstick in Irish politics. Uh, we have a new leader for Fine Gael, and next week, uh, all things being equal, uh, Leo Varadkar will become the 13th Taoiseach of the state and the 14th leader uh, of the state, I think uh, the very first William T. Cosgrave, he was he was uh, the president of the executive uh, council. Um, but let's first of all reflect on the day itself. The Fine Gael election was a new one. Instead of having its parliamentary party uh, electing the Taoiseach, they had three distinct colleges. Uh, there was the parliamentary party, which had sixty five percent of the vote waiting. Uh, there was the councillors, 235, uh, 223 of them who voted, who had 10% of the waiting. And then there was the membership, 21,000 in all, I think slightly over 10,000, 10,800 voted in the end, and they had 25% of the waiting. But it did look likely that Simon Coveney might just win the popular vote, and that's how things panned out. But he did win by a bigger margin than some people had predicted. Oh, very, very much so. And I think... Um you know, that was probably the big surprise of the day. So at the end of the day, looking back, and while it's an event of immense significance, and I suppose we've been following every twist and turn over the last couple of weeks, so we're not that surprised by it. But people who are coming to uh, coming to this event fresh, it is a, an event of, you know, enormous significance, enormous novelty, you know, uh, Ireland's, if... if if he is elected Taoiseach, and that's what we expect to happen the week after next when the doll comes course, back, he'll be the youngest Taoiseach, obviously the first openly gay Taoiseach, the son of an immigrant. You can imagine the headlines that this is already making around uh, around the world. But that having been said, this is what we all expected to happen today. What we didn't expect to happen was that Simon Coveney would win the popular vote amongst the members of Fine Gael by such a ma- wide margin, 65% to 35% per, uh, percent when the votes were counted. And I think that puts him, while no, uh, no doubt, of course, that the day belongs to Leo Varadkar and he is, you know, he moves to the very centre of our political and national consciousness. But, uh, you know, I think that uh, it was a significant achievement for Simon Coveney and more than just a footnote uh, 
to uh, to the results that he did so well. I think it puts him into a strong position to for an enhanced presence uh, in the next government uh, when it is formed by Leo Varadkar. Because two weeks ago, it looked like it was going to be a rout. Simon Coveney looked like he was dead in the water after so many people had pledged themselves uh, on behalf of Leo Varadkar. And what he did was he prolonged the campaign. He gave it impetus. But he actually electrified the campaign and made it seem real. So Fine Gael had two weeks of uh, of great free publicity and uh, and its membership had a chance to redefine the party. Fiocq, you have patented the Irish Times tracker and it was very accurate, I think, uh, all things being, being had a equal. M- minor heart stoppage when they announced the councillors to see if I was right. No, it was, it was, it was mm. relatively accurate. But yeah, I think, um, you know, the Simon Coveney, uh, Simon Coveney's decision to stay in the race and take it to the members and take it to the hustings was fully vindicated by the result he achieved amongst the party members. You would almost think that it was almost... I'm not going to say they weren't voting for him as a good candidate. I'd imagine a small percentage of that was almost a thank you from the members to to him for bringing this to them. I've speaking to people in Dublin Central in recent days who, you know, let's face it, neighbouring constituency of Leo Varadkar would be considered to vote for Varadkar. But members saying, no, because he did this and brought the process to us, we're going to support him and fair play to him for hanging in. And I think it stood to him massively that he did so and the debates were really well organised they were really well contested and they really re-energised the party like you heard I think Jerry O'Connell returning officer at that final hustings in Cork said there's the, the party is jizz up now but I wouldn't put it like that but it's certainly an element of truth to it Yeah well the, the phrase jizzed up is, a, is an old Irish expression but unfortunately it has been merged with another more modern world that means something completely different but moving very swiftly on uh, Pat that was the membership uh, the councillor vote was kind of even Stephen I think Leo Varadkar prevailed a, a little there 123 to 100 that was to be expected and we'd been following that on the tracker and knew that Leo Varadkar had an edge uh, with that particular constituency and as Fiuk uh, opens yet another bottle of Eastern European beer uh, Pat is now going to uh, tell us uh, about his view about the third and most important chapel that of uh, the actual membership of the parliamentary party Um, We always knew that Simon Coveney had an uphill battle. Uh, There was a big gap uh, between him and Leo Varadkar. But by any measure, Leo Varadkar's uh, win was very decisive and very conclusive. Anybody who had been sitting on the fence or who hadn't been declared, all but one of them seemed to have moved in his direction. But the winning and losing of this election was with it was in the parliamentary party at 65% of the vote so the game was in the parliamentary party and i think that leo varadkar uh, had been thinking about this for uh, for a long time he was you know as a uh, as a fresh faced young councillor he was one of the people who brought this change in the party rules to its national conference back you know in uh, in the early 2000s and you know, he was prepared and was preparing for this from uh, for months out. Uh, I think it's uh, I think it's fair to say, and he concentrated his efforts on the parliamentary party because they were, as I say, the winning and losing of it. And in those early days of the campaign, after Enda Kenny declared that he would be resigning uh, as leader and, you know, I suppose firing officially the starting pistol to a contest that had been effectively on 
ever since Enda Kenny announced his imminent departure without specifying a date back in February. And I think that, you know, the avalanche of supporters, the rush to Varadkar in those early days, that was, uh, you know, that was depicted or was illustrated on the election tra- uh, the election tracker that um, that Fiukran, uh, I, I think that put him in uh, an utterly commanding position from the very word go. I remember you saying to us, I think, on the uh, on the Friday morning that this thing could be over by the evening. Now, the contest wasn't over by any stretch of the imagination from that evening. But you were right. The Its result was probably never in significant doubt from then on. And perhaps that gave the part, you know, the councillors and it gave the, uh, uh, gave the members a bit of leeway. I think I agree with Felix Simon. Coveney, I think, did himself an awful lot of credit by the way he picked himself off the ground and brought the contest to the members. But its outcome was not significantly yeah, in he, doubt and, from and then it on. It was even an achievement to make himself relevant because, as Pat says, it was never in doubt. Like, the Saturday morning, there was a crucial 48-hour 48 48-hour period, which the Varadkar camp dubbed D-Day as they would, between midday on the Thursday and the Kenny Sudan on the Wednesday and midday on the Saturday. And that took in the period from when nine senators came out and declared for Varadkar to Michael Ring and Francis Fitzgerald introducing Varadkar at his campaign launch. By that stage, he had already, had already clocked up 44% of the available vote. So the result was never in doubt. But Coveney's achievement to make himself relevant was massive. OK, now, there was a two-pronged uh, strategy behind Simon Coveney's uh, campaign, especially the campaign after the first weekend when they had to re-steer the campaign. And the first thing was to go to the membership, to go to the grassroots and to try to garner as much support as possible. And having done that, uh, with that kind of moral imperative, with that kind of mass or critical momentum, they could then go to the uh, members of the parliamentary party and say, look, this is the clear message coming from the membership. Can you change their mind? They thought that maybe five or six of the parliamentary party was swayable. The evidence tonight, uh, when we looked at the numbers, 51 to 23, 22, uh, was that that strategy clearly did not work and it failed. Yeah, it, it failed, I think, because for reasons of cold, hard mathematics, Simon Coveney was unable to convince any of the members of the parliamentary party that he was going to win. And therefore, asking them to change their vote was asking them to get off a winning horse and back a losing horse. And that's just the brutal reality of the sums that were established in the early days of the campaign within the parliamentary party. You know, I think if... You know, he had managed to persuade two or three members of the parliamentary party to come out and change their vote publicly. That might have given a license to some sort of a change. But that was always unlikely. It didn't happen. And his campaign team was, uh, you know, was was reduced to saying that they thought they had a few members, but obviously they couldn't say so publicly. And that, I think, you know, betrayed the fundamental weakness uh, of their position, which was that, you know, notwithstanding his enormous success among the grassroots, which I think exceeded probably even his own expectations mm-hmm. when the numbers were counted today, this was won and lost at the parliamentary party and it was won and lost. That was a very deliberate strategy by the Varadkar campaign. They said, one of them said to me, this is going to be one in a 75%. The 75% being the 65 allocated to the parliamentary party and the 10 to the councillors. They said, look, it's too hard to try and judge the, the 21,000 members 
who are going through now. We just we can't be, we can't judge that. But our focus is going to be here. Yeah, I must say I was uh, very uh, cynical about the this this claim that they could sway five or six. We're all used to politicians telling us one thing in private and then yes. saying something completely opposite in public. But once a politician has declared himself or herself in public, I found it very hard to think that yeah. they would reverse that and in private. The funny thing was actually speaking to a couple of people who had already declared their support for Varadkar, they were actually kind of almost offended by this idea that they could be persuaded to change their mind. But they were saying, like, we've, we've already come out and mm. said we're voting for Leo Varadkar, why are we changing mind? And the idea that their grassroots oppression, I think, also struck as something of a sour note with some of them. Now, they understood that, look, this was a two-week process. Simon Coveney was out of the game within three days. He had to keep himself relevant. He had to say things. He had to say certain things, like, you know, in recent days being that people are going to switch to my side that was all just volume to keep himself relevant to the entire process right, Now he did hit the phones with a vengeance last night but it, it clearly didn't have any effect on the overall result but the result has been declared it was a decisive result in the end Pat I think 60% to 40% when you brought all three colleges together and then half an hour later Leo Varadkar arrived to a tumultuous uh, welcome uh, and then half an hour later he gave a speech and the speech was short pithy uh, but he had a few points that he had to make and then half an hour later he about 40 minutes later he gave his first press conference and that lasted for about uh, 30 minutes I think it would be fair to say that everybody was impressed uh, by his confidence by his composure and by the clarity of his thinking uh, during the course of that press conference what was your overall impression of the conference is his bearing and more importantly what he had to say yeah I thought he did uh, I thought he did well I mean I suppose it, it probably uh, wasn't the most difficult press conference he will ever have to give uh, you know the hall was still full of his uh, of his supporters some of his responses were being applauded which uh, is not usually uh, the uh, the way at uh, at press conferences and you know he's after you know the greatest achievement of his political career so obviously he was uh, he was buoyed up by that at that but nevertheless you know he answered um he answered all the questions i think you know he says himself, and he said himself in that uh, in the press conference, he will be a different leader with a different style to Enda Kenny. He paid full some tribute to Enda Kenny. He said if he was as successful as leader and Taoiseach as Enda Kenny uh, have been, he would be satisfied. But I think you will find a much more engaged politics from him. I think you will find, uh, you know, that he is more, probably more combative in the Dáil and in situations uh, like like that press conference. He is, uh, you know, now he's coming on, t- he's coming after a two-week training course and answering all these questions questions. So you would expect him to be at the top of his game. But uh, I, I, I think we're certainly in for a different experience. As political correspondents covering him, mm-hmm. I think we're in it for a different a different sort of experience than we would have been used to with Enda Kenny. Yeah, the straight-talking Leo. I always thought this was kind of a great uh, victory for spin. You know, you can spin yourself so well that you can appear to be unspun. But he is very direct sometimes when he, he responds to questions. He was asked, for example, tonight, uh, is it going to be an abortion on the Eighth Amendment, or is it going to be a referendum on the Eighth Amendment on abortion next year? And he said, yes, there will be. Mm-hmm. And he has also been quite direct in terms of how he's going to uh, take on Sinn Féin and take on the left-wing party and about his relationship with, with Fianna Fáil. He said there's not going to be an early election. That's what he said tonight. He said he's going to honour the agreement uh, and he's also going to honour the agreement that he arrived at with the Independent Alliance in relation to the programme for government. Uh, do you think that he will stand by all of this, Fiat? He left himself a small bit of rigour room on the question of the election, as he, he must. He did. As he must. Yeah. He cannot definitively rule it. He said, 
I'm not planning to. It is not my plan to. It was the tiniest fact, bit of agreement. I, I, I specifically asked him because I asked him that question. I specifically asked him, was it the case that he had no plans for an election or was it the case that there absolutely would not mm. be an election? And he said the case was he had no plans for election. So as Fiuk identifies, he... He has a little bit of wriggle he room. He has a little bit of wriggle room there and he's left himself wriggle room on that question for a number of weeks now. But it is a great triumph of Radker that, you know, he is, as you say, this straight talker by virtue of the fact that he did give a couple of very direct uh, opinions and criticisms in the, down through the years. The most obvious one being when he came out and he said that the Garda whistleblowers were, um, they were, I think the phrase was uh, distinguished, distinguished, distinguished yeah. rather, than disgu- rather than disgraceful. And he built on that, but he's not, you know, he's not <laughs> averse to kind of putting a bit of mala around his own words when he wants to. Like, he will evade questions like any other politician. But the fact that he's managed to spin himself as this straight talker, that ends now because mm-hmm. the public exposure to him has amplified significantly. As Enda Kenny said at the launch of the Newlands Book Guide, when the night before he stepped down, he was kind of in reflective mode. He said, this job, you know, attracts attention like no other. You do not realise what you're getting yourself in for. And that is going to be the really interesting development. Varadkar, to some extent, has been the darling of the media, the darling of the press. People like him, but that's not going to last forever. Yeah, there is the the the, uh, the lack of decision narrative that surrounds Varadkar, especially during his tenure as Minister for Health, that he was the doctor who was very good, good at diagnosing all the ailments and everything that was so wrong. But when it came... Uh, to uh, uh, doling out the hard medicine. Uh, He sometimes lacked a little in terms of that. Maybe that was a little bit unfair because he did very well when he was the Minister for Tourism and Transport with some of the initiatives that he came forward. But there has been that narrative that he has flattered to... Uh, uh, he, he, has, he has flattered us uh, but he's not always exceeded in terms of fulfilling all the expectations that people have for him. Yeah, I, you know, I think there's been pretty fair questions and some of, you know, the best informed commentators on health policy would say that, you know, he talked a very good game but his record of achievement was uh, was pretty thin. Against that, I think, must be measured the... Uh, or must be set the reality within the Department of Health and within across government at that period, which was a period of retrenchment in the public finances when, you know, the the policy flexibility of many ministers, especially in the Department of Health, was severely restricted by the lack of uh, by 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 the lack of resources and by the need to to cut budgets. And Mr. Varadkar came out of health you know, looking for looking for more money. And interestingly, when he was asked about that during the course of the election campaign, he said he had unfinished business in health. I think he realises himself that he left that with, uh, you know, with his reputation perhaps intact, but certainly not enhanced. And I think how he behaves towards the Department of Health in uh, uh, when, when, if and when he is Taoiseach will be one of the really interesting things to watch about uh, his t- uh, his tenure, especially, uh, you know, in the light of last week's <coughs> uh, report from the Committee on the Future of Healthcare, which lays out a 10-year plan for quite profound and radical reform of the health system. So what will he take on board from that? Will he do things such as recommended by that committee or will he back initiatives to completely separate the private and public healthcare systems in this country? Something which you might imagine would not be welcomed by many Fine Gael voters. So I think that, you know, 
health care and health policy will be one of the tests of him as uh, as Taoiseach. Finally, uh, Pat and Fiek, before we deplete our uh, supplies of Irish Times liquor and uh, <laughs> alcohol. Um, Thin enough supplies there. <laughs> we'll have to break into the editor's <laughs> office and take some of his best claret uh, later on. Um, I'll ask the, the final question. It's a two-pronged question. Uh, if you looked at the international headlines, most of them made big play of the fact that he's gay and that he's the son of uh, an Indian immigrant. That was less uh, visible amongst the Irish media who were present at the press conference tonight. And the second part is um, is slightly more difficult uh, one uh, to answer is uh, what do you think um, Leo Varadkar is going to make of uh, his time as uh, Taoiseach? What's the what's his uh, premiership uh, going to be like in your estimation? Perhaps you feel first of all, could, could answer those questions. I think it's going to be a very different premiership, as Pat has hinted at. Uh, a couple of minutes ago, a couple of minutes ago than what we've seen before, we've had the end of Kenny period of six years. Prior to that, we had the Brian Cowan period. Prior to that, we had Bertie Hearn. This is a, a political uh, animal of a different stripe. That this is going to be someone who's going to be very fixed in what he wants to do. Well, we think that's from, as of observing him now, he has a fixed idea of what, what he wants to do, how he wants to achieve it. He's going to be combative, as Pat says. It's going to be unlike probably anything we've seen for about 10 or 15 years, I would imagine. It's going to be extremely novel. But the test of him will be if he has these big ideas that we saw in his policy document to a certain extent. Does he? How does he follow them through? Does he apply himself to what he wants to do? Because there has been question marks over that before about health, etc. We've spoken about that. So if he sets out a couple of distinct policy aims and applies himself to those, then he will be successful. But his main appeal f- to Fine Gael in running for leader was that he was going to define the party. And I think the most interesting thing in the short term will be how he defines that. Because let's face it, there's going to be an election in the medium term at least. Okay, the other thing that was marked here was how insignificant his sexuality was to the yeah, contest. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. At one of the recent press conferences um, over the last few, few weeks, um, I think it was at his campaign launch, I was speaking to a journalist from an international publication, and they were remarking on the fact that their editors were hugely interested in the story because of what you say, you know, gay man, son of immigrants, kind of a strange name for an Irish uh, would-be prime minister. But it was almost like it was just a shrug for Irish people because, you know, we've lived with this guy for many years now, you know, from since 2007, but we know him. But not just that. It's like the response was equated to the same-sex marriage referendum where Irish people just did it. And they just kind of went, well, that was it. And it's the same thing here. That, like, yeah, he is going to be our Taoiseach and what about it? Okay, and your assessment, Pat? Yeah, well, but just on, on, on that point, at first, I suppose, um, it struck me that one of the... the the lengthiest rounds of applause he got during the uh, during his first speech, his acceptance speech in the Mansion House this evening, was when he talked about his father travelling five hundred or uh, five thousand miles to make a, a new life and for himself. And he said now that the world would look at uh, Ireland and see that his son was judged on his character and on his actions rather than on his origin and his identity. And uh, and, and it, it quite a you know, kind of a resonant phrase, it's I thought. But here in American politics. It, it, I think there was flashes of the sort of political rhetoric uh, and the elevation of political rhetoric, which I think he understands as a student of politics, that hasn't really 
for a long time been part of uh, of our politics, but may peep its head above the parapet a little bit now. I think as to his uh, his prospects for success as Taoiseach, it's impossible to say. First of all, he goes into a, a, a job for which he has prepared, but for which really there is no adequate preparation because it's so different to any other job, including any other job in politics. He will be responsible for things that he has little or no control over and he will have to uh, he will have to account for that in the public fora in the doll and in the media and uh, and so forth i think we can say one thing though and that is that his political and campaigning skills which we have seen not just in recent weeks and months but over the course of his uh, career would suggest that he is well equipped to do the political side of the mm. job. But the the, uh, the interest that we will have and the way that people are, the, the, the barometer by which people will uh, will judge him, I think, is not his, uh, his, his mastery of the political skills. It is to what end he uses those political skills. I think he's in a good starting position uh, to utilise those political skills to achieve the sort of, you know, benefits and life improvements that people in an increasingly transactional political age expect their politicians to deliver for them. As to whether it'll be a success or not, that will be the subject of many more podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, his uh, Twitter handle is Campaign for Leo, which I've always found to be kind of fascinating and quite telling. And of course, I don't want to end my own contribution on a negative note, but the, the Titanic was the greatest liner in the world uh, when it left Belfast. But a few days later, uh, we all know what happened to it. And some people who looked like they were going to become the greatest Tisha ever, uh, unfortunately failed in the... Um, job and then some people for whom we had very low expectations actually far exceeded those expectations. We just have to wait and see to see how Leo Varadkar work, works out. I'm very obliged to both my political colleagues, Pat Leahy, the political editor of the Irish Times, and Fia Kelly, political correspondent of the Irish Times. And I can't even pronounce the name Is of the beer. Sponsored by Staropraman. Staropraman beer helped enormously the Czech Republic. Helped enormously with the fluidity and fluency of this particular podcast. Yeah. And uh, my uh, thanks also go to Declan Conlon who produced tonight's podcast. Until the next time it's Harry McGee and you can follow us on irishtimes.com <laughs>